Welcome back, everybody, to the Noggin Notes podcast. I believe this is episode number 53, but I'm not actually sure how we're keeping track these days because we had the cross-promotion with Sanomine last week where Susanna Senyachich talked about defeating stigma of treating your mental illness and getting good mental health care. And I believe that was number 52, which would make this number 53. So uh, semantics aside, we are doing this podcast, and I am proud to say that we are partnering with Sanomind. It's it's a really cool app that you can download on your iOS application or uh, platform, I should say, and get the application and listen to audio insights about psychological well-being like what we're doing here. So check out Sanomind. And I look forward to our partnership with them. We're also sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, which is the company I co-own here in Reno, Nevada. And this episode is about something unique called vicarious trauma. Uh, Right now in northern Nevada, northern California, we are suffering some hideous effects of massive wildfires. And um, for those of you who don't experience this, maybe you're you're scattered around the United States or, or in countries abroad, they're awful. And I go into depth about, well, I don't really go into depth. That's, that's not quite true. But, it, but I, I explain a little bit about what vicarious trauma is and how it can affect people and how we can make ourselves a little bit more healthy. And I use the framework of the fires to do that because we're, we're suffering here in northern Nevada even though our uh, valley is not on fire. So with that, I'm not going to spoil the program. Just sit back and relax and plug in and enjoy the podcast. And if you have questions about any of this stuff, any of the, the psychological stuff that I talk about, any of the emotional things, uh, any of the modalities that we that we delve into, please email us at info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org, and I will be happy to answer those questions. This episode actually comes from a listener, and um, I'm I'm really proud of that. So it's not a listener mail. It just is an episode that stands on its own. And we do that sometimes because sometimes the topics are uh, so wide-reaching that it warrants its own episode. Thanks for plugging in. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we invite you to give us a rating and review on uh, iTunes or on Google Play. And that drives listenership. Obviously, we give this stuff away for free because we just want people to be better at what they're doing in life. So thanks for your support, as always, and um, enjoy the show. This is episode number 53, as far as I know it, and it is about vicarious trauma. So here we are talking about a new topic that I don't believe I've covered except for maybe in... um, very um, tangential reference on this podcast, and it's uh, vicarious trauma. And the reason I'm talking about this, and, and if you'll pardon me, I, I think I have my my super low AM radio voice on. It's because my valley in which I reside, which is the Truckee Meadows, it's the Reno Sparks area of, of Nevada, is inundated with smoke right now. It's the the last week of July, first week of August, and we are experiencing some crazy smoke inhalation right now. It's uh, it's affecting everything and everybody, and as much as I want to complain about it, I really can't because the the people who live in the areas where the smoke is originating have it so much worse than we do. And uh, for as much as I want to complain about my itchy eyes and uh, my scratchy throat and my 
lower baritone voice because of all the smoke in the air, um, I really can't because my home is not being burnt to a crisp and uh, my family is safe, my uh, pets are alive, and my neighborhood is not in ash. And that is exactly what is happening right now in Northern California and several places all over uh, California. There, there are uh, you know, 17 or 18 fires actively burning, the largest of which is the CAR, C-A-R-R, fire. Um, and it's consumed 130,000 acres, I want to say, with um, uh, th- uh, like a 1,000 structures destroyed. And um, I, I want to say there's, uh, there's six or eight people uh, who have died and a dozen or more who are missing. And I'm, I'm just pulling this out of, uh, out of memory right now because I don't have it in front of me. But it's really, really sad. And it's very scary because the fire is not contained at all. I think the last uh, measurement I saw was that the fire was 12% contained or something like that. Uh, which basically means that the uh, firefighters have set up a, a containment or area around the fire of approximately, you know, one-tenth of the fire, um, which means the rest of it is completely out of control and can go any direction at any time. And being in the middle of summer, it's very dry, and there's a lot of tinder and fuel for the fire, and there are a lot of winds and um, it's just very scary, and it's consuming a lot of homes and ruining a lot of lives, and not to mention the economy and, and uh, the cities that are involved. It's very, very scary. So I set that tone for you because we had a, a an email come into the account that said, can you please talk about the fires and the trauma that it's causing? And uh, it, it, and I'm paraphrasing here. That that wasn't the whole email. The email was very lengthy, and I appreciate the author. The author is uh, Heather from Sacramento, Sacramento area, uh, Roseville is um, what she said. But um, it's uh, it's not really about the trauma. And and if you if you detect a little bit of hesitation in my voice, and and I'm not as confident as you as I usually am, it's because I'm I myself am am pretty rocked by this. We are. Uh, in the in the Reno Sparks area, uh, w- watching this this fog of smoke roll in, where we we can't see further than about two miles across our valley, which is normally very beautiful and very picturesque. Um, and and the smoke plume goes east across Nevada for at least a hundred miles, because I also do work out in Lovelock, Nevada, where Zephyr Wellness um, works in the schools. And the smoke out there is just as thick. And if that gives you any indication, um, the Shasta area of California where, where the fire is burning is, um, is about 100 miles away from us. So, so we're basically talking 200, 250 miles of smoke that is so thick that you can't see further than about two miles in any direction. And, um, and, and it's devastating. So the, the, the question that, that Heather raises is, you know, can, can you talk about, you know, can I talk about trauma? And what she's really asking, and she doesn't realize this, is that she's asking me to talk about what's called vicarious trauma. And this is a, a, a bit of a phenomenon in our world that's only about 20 years old. And really, it's more like 17 years old because it came around the, the 
2001 episode of uh, you know terrorists bombing America with with jet airplanes. Uh, and I'll get into that in a minute, but but it's it's very recent that we've labeled it as such. Before we uh, we had a label for it, which is vicarious trauma. What we had was um, something that was akin to telling people that that what they were experiencing was not real, simply because they had not been up close and personal to it. So what that means is that in my field we have this this uh, Bible. Uh, so to speak, of clinical knowledge that outlines all the all the diagnostic criteria for how to assess somebody's mental wellness, and it's called the DSM. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and then uh, I guess you could say parenthetically of mental disorders. So this DSM has gone through several iterations. We're currently on uh, number five, and the DSM tells us everything we need to know about how to identify a mental disorder. It doesn't tell us how to cure it. Um, that's up to the individual clinician to determine how to, um, how to treat it. But what it says is, for something like post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, an individual has to have experienced something that looks like death or threat to life or threat to another person's life. So before the, the events of 9-11 in America, we, we just assume that, that to mean you personally encountered something that threatened your life or the life of another or took the life of another or caused so much harm that you thought maybe your life was in danger. Um, if we re- rewind backward into time, uh, pe- soldiers coming back from like World War One or World War Two, we would refer to it as shell shock. And, uh, and we had various uh, labels for such a thing. But then we labeled it post-traumatic stress disorder, and that was if it stuck with you longer than a, a certain period of time, you know, six months or whatever. And if it was inside of that, we'd call it acute stress disorder. Now, that's a diagnosable condition. It has a code. We can bill your insurance for it and so forth. But what we learned after 9-11 was people were so glued to their TVs watching these repeated images of planes flying into buildings and people jumping from the buildings just to to avoid the inevitable fire or the crash of the building, which which we saw happen, and then the crashing of the buildings themselves in New York City. What we learned was that people as far away from New York City as, say, Reno, Nevada, could experience this post-traumatic stress disorder symptomatology. We were losing sleep, we were having nightmares, we lost our appetite, we, um, we were experiencing images and visions of things that were horrific to us, even though we hadn't been present on, say, ground zero ourselves. So what this came to be known as is, is vicarious trauma. And this is a very real thing. If you're exposed to, to something repeatedly, even if you didn't personally experience it, you can suffer the same symptoms as someone who was there in person. And I don't invite a conversation about whether or not it's better or worse. We're not, we're not into comparison here. What we're simply analyzing is the, the very real fact that somebody like me, who is 23 years old in 2001, on September 12, can lose his appetite, not want to go into public, uh, have nightmares about planes flying into buildings, even though he was 2,800 miles away from Manhattan. 
that was very real for me. It was very real for many of my peers. And it was very real for uh, many people around the world. And some very astute scientists and researchers decided they were going to do some studies about this and found out that repeated exposure to images over time can absolutely incur trauma in those folks who are watching it. So this has long-reaching implications, of course. Now, when we're talking about social media and YouTube and even something you subscribe to on purpose, maybe like uh, Netflix, if you're uh, I'm sorry, if you're consistently watching negative imagery, violent imagery, imagery of victimization, you too, on your couch, in your living room, can absorb this. And you can believe that you are part of that victimization, that trauma, that terror, even though it's manufactured in Hollywood and pumped through your TV. And I'm going to pause there and I'll come back to it in a moment. What does this have to do with fires in California? Well, what we're experiencing now is we're experiencing the smoke pouring into the Truckee Meadows Valley. Uh, we got 400-some thousand people living here collectively in the incorporated and unincorporated parts of Reno and Sparks and Washoe County. And we are, yes, we are suffering the symptoms of smoke inhalation. We get that. It smells bad. It, it affects our, uh, our pulmonary system. It, it doesn't doesn't feel good. We don't sleep well. However, when we're reminded of why the smoke even exists in the first place, we are channeling imagery that we see on the news media and on social media of flames consuming homes, people running for their lives. Uh, there's there's uh, helicopters dropping water. There's planes dropping uh, flame retardant. And what we're doing is we're either consciously or unconsciously, we're picturing ourselves in that situation. And we're imagining ourselves running from the same situation as though it is affecting us right now. Now, part of this is a good thing because we, we know how to prepare for such emergencies. Uh, I happen to live in a house that's next to a hill that's full of sagebrush and, and uh, cheat grass. And if that thing were to catch on fire, my home would be in danger. I want to have an evacuation plan prepared, and I want to have uh, lines of communication established with my family should we all not be at home, for example. And we want to know how to, to, to take care of ourselves in that situation should the hell catch on fire. Now, that's mindful planning. That's not the same as anxietizing about the hill catching on fire as though it's actually happening and we're actually walking it through, which is what is going on right now in America as disasters befall us. We have school shootings, we have terrorist plots, we have uh, forest fires and brush fires, we have natural disasters, hurricanes uh, you know, hitting, hitting Gulf Coast areas, we've got tornadoes in the Midwest. And some of us who are not actually living that out are receiving the imagery and feeling as though we're actually a part of it. And this is a big problem because previous to about the last 10 or 12 years, we could turn that off. We got it in 30-minute clips, six minutes at a time through our evening news, and then it was done. We empathized with the people. Maybe we sent a donation to the Red Cross, and we wrote letters of support, and we prayed in our living rooms that, you know, uh, spiritual power would intervene and, and give comfort and peace to people. 
Now what we've got is a 24-hour news cycle, and we've got exposure to media all the time that feeds us the images of these horrible things happening to people who didn't bring it on themselves. And what it does is it places us in a perpetual state of being on our heels, of limbic reaction. And if you've, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you'll know that I, I'm a big fan of emotionality, knowing what our emotions do, and learning to regulate them. But if we're constantly in the state of fight or flight, simply because we're watching things that aren't necessarily happening to us, what it does is it artificially elevates our level of anxiety. We bring that anxiety into our world, and then we're we might be a little testy, we might be a little edgy, we might be hypervigilant, and we might snap at people uh, without real reason for doing so. And it's all because we're taking it in through our mobile phones, through our computer consoles, uh, through our television sets, and whatever we're doing. I can't believe I just said television set like I'm from the 50s. Like There's a set in which the television resides. But anyway, our, our TVs and our, our mobile phones and our, and our computers we're receiving this this information and our brains are overstimulated and we don't have an ability to decompress unless we voluntarily go and let it off somewhere like the gym, like a conversation. And then, of course, we have to take the next step to turn it off. So back to 9-11, this was the first time that we were ever bombarded repetitively with imagery. Back in 9-11, it was 2001, we didn't have mobile phones with streaming video. We didn't have streaming video. It wasn't a thing. There was no Netflix. Google was barely alive. And you had to know what you were doing to find what you wanted. So every time we turned on the TV, what we saw was images of planes flying into buildings. And this is how we found out about vicarious trauma. We had a whole nation that was shell-shocked, to use an archaic term, through this constant uh, introduction of violence into our psyches and into our minds and into our eyeballs and into our neurology. And we didn't know what to do with it. So as a consequence, we had an entire nation that was now reeling from the effects of something that happened not in their backyard but in somebody else's backyard. What we've done recently is we've taken this in and we are glued to whatever the media are feeding us at the time because what we know about the limbic system is it kicks in the fight-or-flight response that then says, do something, be on alert, prepare, go buy something to protect yourself, um, prep for the, for the uh, inevitable coming of whatever's coming. And so they feed off this, the media do, and so do the advertisers, and they purposely put it into your psyches because it, it buys clicks, it buys uh, advertisements. And so now we've, we've got real, actual, natural disasters, and... What's happened is we've desensitized our fight-or-flight response. We've desensitized our limbic system to knowing what is real and what needs responding to what's simply pop culture telling us that we need to respond. I don't know that I need to react as uh, vociferously to um, The Bachelor not picking The Bachelorette who's on the show as I do to a fire in my backyard, but because my brain has now been programmed to see everything as an equal threat, I can't dis discern which is which. And so we're constantly in a hyper-anxious hyper state. We don't know what to do about 
one thing from the next. And the, the quick answer is to reach for things like medication or uh, drink or drug to calm us down. So I, I'm glad for the, the email that came in because it, it raised a great question about the, the vicarious trauma part. But what it also raised is the, is the idea that we're so saturated with high-level stimulation that we can no longer differentiate emergency from normalcy. So my invitation to you as I wrap up this podcast is that you analyze where you spend your time, where you put your attention, what kind of things you invite into your mind. And if I can borrow a phrase from my friend Christian Conti, um, he recently did an experiment. It wasn't an experiment. It was, it was more of an anecdote with a group of uh, college students. And he said, imagine I gave you a bucket. Now, if I put something in that bucket, what would you have in the bucket? And everybody paused, and they didn't know what to say. And eventually somebody said, whatever you put in the bucket. He said, exactly. Now, the same thing works for your mind. If you have a mind, whatever you put in your mind is there. Keep that in mind as you move forward, and whatever your eyeballs grace, whatever your senses touch is going to be in your mind. And I invite you to be very, very careful about what it is that you put in your mind. Because if you put in images of violence and neglect and sadness and trauma and emergency, your mind is going to be in a state of all those things. However, if you introduce things about peace and tranquility and happiness, you're also going to have those things in your mind. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, I know it was a little weird. Pardon my AM radio voice. The smoke is affecting me too. But ultimately, I just I issue prayers and I send resources and I invite you all to do the same to the folks who are most affected by the fires, the people who are losing their homes. Losing an octave of my voice is nothing compared to losing one's home or one's children in a fire. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to give us feedback at info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org, and also give us a ratings and review on iTunes or on Google Play so that we can drive listenership. I promise in the future we'll do a little bit more uplifting stuff, but I believe that at this point in my life I'm, I'm compelled to give some, some gravity to what we're doing with our own minds and our psyches as we intake things. And I want intentionality by, behind what we put in front of us and especially in front of our children. I wish you all great mental wellness. Please support one another. And I wish you much love and peace. Have a great week. 